From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. As the 1871 Ku Klux Klan Act is invoked in a lawsuit against former President Trump, we revisit our conversations with author Natan Elaine Kemp about the white mob violence of the Reconstruction era. Some black voters attempted to vote, but you had whites on horses with their pistols and their red shirts standing around the polling center, preventing blacks from actually reaching the polls to vote. And what the hay is happening in Texas? The same week that the U.S. lands a rover on Mars, residents throughout the country's second largest state don't have clean water and hundreds of thousands are still in the dark and in the cold. I didn't feel like I was living in Houston. Uh, the quality of life had diminished. Uh, to sit in a parking lot waiting for, you know, three and four hours for food to ride around town for another three and four hours to look for food and gas. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital for February 19th, 2021. I'm Esther Averam. This week, a power outage impacting the entire state of Texas, with dozens dead and millions left without power or clean water, even superseded coronavirus and Trump's impeachment acquittal as proof that the U.S. is a failed state. The marriage between fossil fuel giants and the state's energy management agency allowed fossil fuel giants to create a captive energy market that is totally detached from the rest of the U.S. energy grid. Energy corporations operating there are exempt from federal regulations and so did not even weatherize their polluting coal, natural gas, and oil plants, so they froze up like icicles. To make matters worse, these same polluters are engaging in price gouging during the crisis with Reuters reporting on Monday that prices spiked more than 10,000% in the aftermath of freezing weather. One young business owner told the Daily Beast that her monthly bill jumped from $33 to more than $2,800 for one month. Congressman Joaquin Castro, who represents half of San Antonio and neighboring suburbs, told MSNBC Thursday that the current energy system is not serving the people of Texas. The grid in Texas has got to be better integrated with the rest of the country, uh, and it's got to be better prepared for these kinds of weather events. Uh, Unfortunately, in Texas, you've got people high up in state government who don't believe in climate science, who deny climate change, and also people who are absolutely married to the fossil fuel industry. So, you know, when you combine all of those things, uh, it it has made for, uh, in this case, a dangerous mix. Well, speaking of a toxic mix, everyone knows by now that 43 Republican senators voted Saturday to acquit former President Donald Trump in his impeachment trial for inciting the January 6th deadly violence at the U.S. Capitol. And everyone knows about the speech Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell gave after voting to acquit, which basically invited the judicial system, the courts, to prosecute Trump, to hold Trump accountable for conspiracy and sedition in a way that he refused to do in the Senate. So now on cue, here come more lawsuits. On Tuesday, Representative Benny Thompson of Mississippi filed a lawsuit against former President Trump, Trump's former lawyer Rudy Giuliani, 
the hate group the Proud Boys, and the far-right militia group the Oath Keepers. Thompson, joined by the NAACP, is claiming that actions by both men and by both organizations on January 6th violated the 1871 Ku Klux Klan Act, which prohibits any action designed to keep members of Congress from fulfilling their duties, or any lawmaker from fulfilling their duties. Thompson spoke to CNN. If you disagree in America with the outcome of an election, you don't riot. You don't do anything other than see that individual at the next election. If the Trump administration's philosophy of engagement like happened on January 6th becomes the standard, then every election you disagree with, you just go into the Capitol and tear it up, just like you're a third world country. So this, hopefully, at the end, will mitigate any difference that we might have that in America, we settle our differences at the ballot box. We don't have coups. We don't have riots. We don't have anything that like occurred on January 6th. In a statement about joining Thompson in the lawsuit, the NAACP said that the January 6th riot was a carefully orchestrated attack and that both Trump and Giuliani made comments designed to incite the mob and to thwart Congress's ability to certify the 2020 presidential election. According to USA Today, at least 230 people have been arrested in connection with the January 6th attack, and the New York Times reported on February 4th that 26 of these people are charged with conspiracy crimes or assault, 43 are charged with interference with law enforcement, weapons crimes, threats, or property crimes, and most of the folks, 107 people, were only charged with trespassing or disrupting Congress. Now, those arrested only account for about one quarter of those who breached the Capitol and were allowed to walk away that day. Social justice organizers compare this treatment to the treatment of hundreds of Black Lives Matter activists who were not only assaulted by police, but are now facing serious felony charges for peaceful protests last year. One egregious example we've mentioned on the show is the case of four Colorado activists Lillian House, Joel Northam, Terrence Roberts, and Eliza Lucero, facing possible decades in prison for organizing peaceful protests after Aurora, Colorado police murdered 23-year-old musician and massage therapist Elijah McLean. Lillian House told the Socialist Program podcast that prosecution of the activists sets a dangerous precedent for all peaceful protesters. The police and the prosecutors here are trying to send the message to all of the people who came out this summer, who fought for justice for their community in the ways that we are, you know, allowed to do under the law, who are fighting for justice. They're trying to tell them that, look, we can arbitrarily abduct you. We can arrest you. We can jail you. We can force you through a grueling court process. We can possibly put you away for decades, even if you've committed no crimes. Even if all you wanted was safety for your community. So we can't take that. We have to fight back. The National Committee for Justice in Denver, supporting the four activists, is made up of groups such as unions, anti war groups, journalists, and civil rights advocates 
Concerned about this prosecution of peaceful protesters, you can connect with the committee at denverdefense.org. In D.C. this week, a judge gave a talk about the inequities of the justice system. Chantal James attended. Exploring the flawed criminal justice system, Politics and Prose hosted an event with author Jed Rakoff on his book, Why the Innocent Plead Guilty and the Guilty Go Free. Out of his 24 years as a federal trial judge, he looks into the perils of eyewitness testimony and forensic science, as well as the war on terror and the expanding reach of the executive branch. He argues that the judiciary is constraining its own constitutional powers. Here he explains the growing need to reckon with the judicial system that came out of his work. Every day I was in my court, for example, sentencing young men, usually of color, to inordinate terms required by mandatory sentencing laws that I had no power to change. Every day I was seeing how working class folks who wanted to be in court or who were dragged into court couldn't afford a lawyer and were at a tremendous disadvantage as a result. And then I was also learning a great deal from the work of the Innocence Project and um, their exonerations of people who had been not only convicted beyond a reasonable doubt, but who had their convictions affirmed repeatedly by uh, appellate courts, only to learn through the advent of DNA that they were actually innocent. So after a while, all of this got to me, and I felt um, I needed to uh, speak out. Breakoff also gave his reasoning on why the death penalty is unjust. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James. And finally in culture and media, this week in history, on February 19, 1919, the Pan-African Congress was organized by the author and activist W.E.B. Du Bois. The Congress was a force of resistance against the rampant European colonization and exploitation of Africa. And on February 9, 1942, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt ordered the detention and internment of all West Coast Japanese Americans during World War II. The order forced 120,000 Japanese Americans into concentration camps, Japanese Americans long targeted by racism and economic envy, lost or were swindled out of their homes, businesses, farms, and other possessions, and most never recovered economically, even after some reparations were offered four decades later. The social media platform Parler, popular among many of the far-right groups and individuals that rioted at the Capitol on January 6, has relaunched after being forced offline in the wake of the attack on Congress. Amazon removed the app from its platform after the insurrection, and now a California-based host, SkySilk, Cloud Services is hosting Parler. News click that progressive news outlet in India covering the massive uprising by Indian farmers is still publishing after the Modi government raided its offices, raided the homes of staffers, and interrogated the creator of the site for nearly five days. And finally, this week, WPFW Pacifica Radio in Washington, D.C. honored 
the prolific jazz pianist and composer and band leader Chick Corea, who died February 9th from a rare cancer at his home in Tampa, Florida. He was 79 years old. The tribute Wednesday, February 17th from noon to midnight featured Korea's music as well as interviews he recorded. You can hear the tribute programming by listening to February 17th archive shows from noon to midnight, no matter what the show label says, at wpfwfm.org. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. If you ever wonder why, until this day, blacks make up such a sizable portion of South Carolina's population and Democratic base, it is because South Carolina, namely Charleston, was the first major port of entry for Africans brought to what became the United States. And nearly 100 years before Africans were brought to Jamestown, Virginia, in 1526, enslaved Africans were part of a Spanish expedition to what is now South Carolina. Those Africans launched a rebellion in November of that same year, and the Spanish could not sustain the settlement, which they abandoned a year later. And that brings me to Nathan Elaine Kemp, co-author of There's Something About Edgefield, which includes her research into the American roots of her family, which had been enslaved in Edgefield, South Carolina, and continued to reside there in the first decades after the Civil War. Nathan is a native Washingtonian. And inspired by her mother's trips to Abbeville County, South Carolina during the 1990s to learn more about her maternal line, Natan began researching her paternal line in 2001. Both of her paternal grandparents were born in Edgefield County, South Carolina. She's a family historian, uh, researching ancestors from the District of Columbia, Abbeville, Edgefield, and McCormick counties in South Carolina and Brunswick, Carolyn, Hanover, and Louisa counties in Virginia. She's a 2010 graduate of the National Institute on Genealogical Records, now known as the Genealogical Institute on Federal Records. And from 2011 to 2013, she served as editor of Home Place, the official newsletter of the Old Edgefield District African American Genealogical Society. Welcome to Natan. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, until I read your book, I had no idea about Edgefield. So in the decades after the Civil War, black people were routinely murdered, abused, burned from their homes by whites. They are determined to violently reject their claim to equal citizenship and their humanity. So most of us know about Jim Crow terror existing throughout the South, the Deep South, and might give Mississippi the crown for that type of terror. But what is the something about Edgefield, South Carolina? And did you always know about it? Or did you find out about it while researching your family history? It was the latter. I did not know about Edgefield uh, County until I started researching my family history. My paternal grandparents were both born in Edgefield County. What is it about Edgefield? In the title, there is something about Edgefield. In 1860, Edgefield County had the sixth highest enslaved population in the United States. You may have heard of Representative Preston Brooks, who came Senator Charles Sumner on the Senate floor in the early 1850s. Preston Brooks was the congressional representative from Edgefield County. South Carolina, people outside the state always think of Charleston, may think of a few other locations. But during antebellum time period, it was the areas of Edgefield District, as it was known at the time, and Abbeville District, where Vice President John C. Calhoun were from. Those areas were the powerhouse of the states, and those areas were very pro-slavery, very dominant in terms of how they exerted power in the state of South Carolina and shaped policy throughout the state. There was... A portion in your book, when you talk about uh, Edgefield's ugly history, 
and you talk about the black codes. And when you wrote that, the editor of a newspaper in Edgefield announced that if Congress failed to allow the proposed black codes compelling the Negro to labor, the only option was to keep the freedmen from becoming landowners. The editor called for a tax of one to five thousand dollars upon every white man who sells, rents, gives, loans, or in any way conveys to a Negro any tract, parcel, or acreage of land. Fortunately, Congress quickly responded by passing the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which made it illegal to discriminate against the freedmen by assigning them an inferior legal or economic status. On July 9, 1868, the states ratified the 14th Amendment, which guaranteed equal protection of the laws to residents of every state. Despite this, a freedman testified to the Freedmen's Bureau that it was, quote, dangerous for a black man to live in the Edgefield District, South Carolina, because white men were murdering the freedmen. So that seems to tell it, say it all to me. From your book, there's something about Edgefield. And when I think about the white men murdering the freedmen, meaning, you know, black men at that time, or black women also, it brings me back to today, because I thought that despite the chaos and real trauma that we're all experiencing right now in our country, I thought that the history that you provide in your book relates directly to today in terms of the young people out in the streets uh, protesting the murder of George Floyd. And I wanted to know before we get back to some of the things that you discovered in your research, how you see today's events. I think you have a certain insight relating that history from Edgefield to today. Um, first, I want to give credit that that section of the book was written by my late co-author, Edna Gail Bush. Her great-grandfather, Albert Bush, was part of 2% of Blacks who were able to acquire land in Edgefield after the Civil War. In the book, I talk about Ida uh, B. Wells and what she says in a red record, Alleged Causes of Lynching. She mentions Edgefield by name. Blacks were killed just because they attempted to exercise their right to vote. And you ask, what, what is it about Edgefield? I want to mention that at the time after the Civil War, so in early Reconstruction, there is a person by the name of Lawrence Kane. He gives an account about the number of eligible voters at the time of June 1868, just before the presidential election, there were 4,000, I think, 990-something eligible black voters, of course, all men. And there were only about 2,569 eligible white male voters. Blacks could control things politically just by their vote because they outnumbered the whites. Hmm. And I think hmm. people tend to forget that. And let me also mention, what is it about Edgefield? Edgefield district slash county, because it became a county in 1868, was the only place in South Carolina where the presidential election of 1868 was not held. So everywhere else in South Carolina, blacks, recently freed blacks were able to vote, but not in Edgefield. Unfortunately, what is happening today has happened periodically throughout African-American experience 
in the United States. It is not new. It is not shocking. Maybe for those who don't know history, but for those who spent time delving into either their family history or studying the history of a particular area or the United States, you're going to come across this. And I think the massacres of black people occurred around their attempt to vote. Do you want to tell us about those? I think in the book, we mentioned the Hamburg massacre, which is one. And that received a lot of attention. That was even discussed in the halls of Congress, uh, that particular massacre. And it started off in a sort of a minor dispute. Uh, You had blacks who were, I think, preparing for uh, a march. These were soldiers around the time of the 4th of July for independence. And there were a couple white farmers who were trying to travel along the road. And there was an argument that started. Basically, I think you had one white farmer uh, killed, or a white resident killed, but a number of blacks were killed. And it all started with just this tension between these white farmers who were probably a little irritated with these blacks who they see walking around with rifles. There is another massacre that's mentioned in the, I believe it is in the introduction that is written by Elaine Roundtree. But before you get to that one, though, so what what happened at the end of the Hamburg? I mean, how many black people wound up being killed as a result of this initial skirmish? I do not recall the exact numbers that were killed. I just remember that it was um, it received a lot of attention right. because it was viewed as a massacre, right. not a riot. And that's something I, I wanted to add to in discussion with what's going on in today's event. There is an African proverb that states, until lions become their own historians, every story will glorify the hunter. And we need to tell our stories because presented from a non-black perspective, sometimes what occurred in Hamburg is described as a riot right? versus a massacre. Right. And it's who's telling the story. Okay. Let me say where Hamburg was located because it doesn't exist today. Hamburg was on the border of Augusta, Georgia. Hamburg was like an early Tulsa, Oklahoma. So after the war, you had a lot of blacks who wanted to leave behind tilling of the land. And you had had a society to develop with your lawyers and your bankers, your judges, People who opened up their own businesses, people who got away from the agriculture, they built a society. And part of that, what happened in Hamburg, which was, you would think, just a minor like dispute on the road, there was this tension because whites disliked these blacks who had, who had managed to, after freedom, develop their own societies and succeed. Just to give the audience uh, a better understanding, in 1868, Edgefield change political names in terms of what the state did. They changed it from a district to a county. Hamburg was part of Edgefield County in 1868, but I believe was in March of 1871, Aiken County was formed and Hamburg became part of Aiken County at that point and was no longer part of Edgefield. But when Hamburg started to thrive post-Civil War, And I'm looking at a book called The Bloody Shirt Terror After the Civil War by Stephen Badansky. He mentions specifically regarding Hamburg 
Within a few years, the town was home to hundreds of colored families who had broken free of the life of contracted farm workers, a life scarily distinguishable from slavery. Among their numbers were school teachers, railroad employees, blacksmiths, a successful cotton broker, a printer, a clerk of the court, shoemakers, painters, carpenters, a constable. They bought lots and furnished homes. There were several who made considerable investments in farms and other real estate in South Carolina and states beyond. So Hamburg quickly became a thriving middle class and for a few sort of upper class place to live. They were able to throw off their old life uh, as being farmers and to be able to prosper economically. And what you have similar to Tulsa is whites did not like that. They wanted blacks under their foot. They didn't want to see blacks achieve to assert their independence, to prove that they could do things on their own. They didn't depend on whites to be able to not only make a living, but to excel. That is the voice of author Natan Elaine Kemp, and we're talking about her book, There is Something About Edgefield. This is Pacifica Radio. Stay with us.
I'm Esther Averm in conversation with author Natan Elaine Kemp about her book, There is Something About Edgefield. And before the break, Natan, we were talking about that period right after the Civil War when there were so many tensions between newly freed African people who were succeeding despite the tremendous odds against them and the backlash that they face from whites who did not want to see them do well and the tremendous violence and even assaults and murder perpetrated against the black population in Edgefield, South Carolina, a notoriously violent place. It kind of reminds me of the eulogy, the sermon that the Reverend Al Sharpton gave at the memorial for George Floyd when he just talked about white folks having their knee on our neck, not just in Floyd's killing, but for these so many centuries. Now, I'm seeing another part in the book where, and I think this is here you were talking about that same time. It says, with every passing decade after the Civil War ended, restrictions on blacks worsened. I think you were talking about the black codes at that point. For example, while, no, this is Edna Gale Bush speaking about her ancestors, and she's saying, while my great-grandfather Alfred was able to vote in 1868, by 1904, my grandfather Albert could not. The stripping of rights began after the Hamburg riot. See my co-author's chapter for details. She's talking about you. And the election of Wade Hampton in 1876. A participant in the riot... He's talking about the Hamburg riot and future governor and senator of South Carolina, Edgefield native Benjamin Ryan Tillman stated, quote, we have done our level best to prevent blacks from voting. And we have scratched our heads to find out how we could eliminate the last one of them. We stuffed ballot boxes. We shot them. We are not ashamed of it. End quote. So that's in the book. So. I know that that was one incident. You chronicle so many uh, interesting and just, I don't know, just a real horrific history there. And when you were doing your research, how did you first discover the connection between uh, how voting was used to suppress the population? Once I had exhausted what I could in terms of researching my direct line, I decided to look more broadly in Edgefield, where they live, to get a sense of what things were like for the Black population. I have no writings from my ancestors, no journals, diaries, so I had to turn to what was happening more broadly to get a sense. And as I studied Edgefield, going through the local newspapers, looking at congressional testimony regarding disputed elections during Reconstruction or violence during Reconstruction, I stumbled across the fact that no one was able to vote for the president in 1868 in Edgefield County. And number two, I came across the fact that the 1876 election, which I think from a national perspective, a lot of us know was very important in the history of the United States. Edgefield, or actually the state of South Carolina, was one of those battlegrounds in terms of maintaining the efforts during Reconstruction versus the reassertion of white dominance and white power, particularly in the South. And Edgefield 
happened to be ground zero because the plan that allowed whites to regain power politically in South Carolina was known as the Edgefield Plan. Mm. So Edgefield was the epicenter. And Lawrence Kane was at ground zero trying to resist all of that. What was the Edgefield plan? Was it just basically intimidation, violence, and murder? I mean, basically by any means necessary to suppress the black vote. Right. That including threatening black citizens, that included murdering black citizens, that including whites voting more than once, that including allowing whites from Augusta, Georgia, which is on the border with Edgefield County, mm-hmm. to come over and vote in Edgefield. There are stuffing ballot boxes. You have a group known as the Red Shirts. It's not exactly the same as the Ku Klux Klan, Ku Klux Klan but they shared some traits with them. But this was a group, the Red Shirts, that proudly represented their interests the interests of the Confederacy, even though they lost. And they did what they could to suppress the vote. For instance, I think I recount in the book where some black voters attempted to vote, but you had whites on horses with their pistols and their red shirts standing around the polling center, preventing blacks from actually reaching the polls to vote. Right. I read the quote from, I think it was a member of Congress who just said very boldly and proudly, like, you know, we have done our best to basically keep black people from voting. And uh, he wasn't shy about it. Now, Natan, you were going to tell me about how this related to some passages in The Virtue of Cain also. Yes, but first I wanted to follow up with what you just asked about the quote. The individual you were referring to was Benjamin, nicknamed Pitchfork Tillman. He was governor and later served as a U.S. senator representing South Carolina. So absolutely no regrets. It was something that they had to do to maintain power. Just to give you an example, I gave you the count in terms of registered voters in Edgefield in 1868, black versus whites. Just to give you another example, to give you an idea, blacks outnumbered whites in Edgefield. In 1860, with the 1860 census, Edgefield County was the sixth largest enslaved county in the United States. Wow, this what this is 1860? 1860. So that's the, you know, that's the last sort of population you have officially before the Civil War. Right. And then by 1870, they're freed. So you have to go with 1860 as the closest state you have to that, the size of the enslaved population in Edgefield. So the other thing that really stood out for me was your work and your skill as a researcher of your family history And, you know, as someone who has done just a little bit of that on my own, I was really struck by how the advent, I guess, of DNA testing has made such an impact on that history. Most of us who are African-American who are researching our history hit certain roadblocks. But DNA testing, many of us are maybe working with that in terms of some of these kits that you can get 
mail to you and tells you about your genealogical background and whatever. But it also can tell you about your relatives and people are finding family that they didn't even know about. So in terms of uh, researching our roots of our enslaved ancestors, it's also letting us know very often who the European, usually the European male ancestor is who raped an enslaved woman or a girl and then she bared his child. That's correct. I believe uh, my co-author in her chapters was able to reveal that information and how through DNA testing she was able to connect the dots. Uh, It is important to say that you still have to do the research because you can get DNA results and unless someone is like a first or second cousin you may not be able to just quickly determine how you're related to that individual. Now, in, in reading my book, you may recall that in Chapter 4, I profiled someone by the name of Columbus Blair or C.L. Blair. He was involved in a killing of, of someone uh, during the height of Reconstruction. I didn't have it at the time that I submitted the manuscript, but uh, after the manuscript was submitted, DNA testing basically has revealed that He was, like I suspected, he sired my second great-grandfather, Nathaniel Blair. Wow. And the other part of this whole DNA issue for me is the fact that you can reach out to people. And it's interesting that some are interested in understanding the relationship there and accepting it. And other people are really hostile to the idea of you kind of, of that information being brought to them even if it's just scientifically proven on the paper. Yes, you will encounter that. And I would caution people to don't react. If they don't respond, hopefully they won't send anything nasty. Usually what you may have is someone will initially respond and then stop the conversation. They won't continue the conversation after that. I've had that experience. But let me say that it's not just uh, whites who may disbelieve that there's any way they could be related to you as a black person. You have other blacks who may not want to talk and there may be stories they've been told, maybe realities they don't want to face. So I want to say that it it encompasses all individuals in terms of how sometimes people react to learning that, oh my goodness, why are you so close to me? How could we be first or second cousins? Right, exactly. I mean, that, yeah, that, I mean, that can go up to current living situations like, you know, who's, who's father, who's, who's, you know, whatever. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I would say there, there is that issue because race is such an issue in this country that sometimes folks just can't even handle a discussion Regarding, well, we appear, based on the DNA results, to be connected. Let's try to work together to try to determine. Or could you help me out because you have more likely a complete genealogy versus what I have. Right, right. And some people are open and willing to help, and some are not. And so it's hit or miss. I can't tell you how someone's going to react. Right, right. But um, I do want to spend a little time so that you can offer our listeners some advice on beginning or continuing research into their family history 
when I was reading your bio, it said a few things that were familiar to me. Like, for example, one of the articles that you wrote was stumbling without the 1890 census. And I think that's because that's the year that the census burned, right? Yes. It was a fire at the Commerce Building in 1921. Right. And then overcoming the brick wall of slavery. So I I know that those of us who are African-American who have tried to research our histories, you do feel like you hit this wall because it's not like you can kind of find regular records, you know. And so I know you can't get into either of those in depth, but just give us a maybe one tip that you think is helpful for anyone beginning to research their family history. A tip would be when you start off, make sure you collect as much information as you can on your parents, their siblings, your grandparents, your great grandparents, get all that information first. And then go to the census, start off with the 1940 census and work your way back chronologically every 10 years. The issue is the 1890 census. So you will have a gap of 20 years between 1900 and 1880. But first work your way back to 1870. And then what you need to do, if you can, is you want to try to fill the gap in that 20-year time period. And this is where vital records are important. So you want to get birth, marriage, and death records if you can. Also check, depending on the location, there may be more resources either at the state or local level. You can have, there are local census records, there are tax records, land transactions, voter registration. Of course, that's only going to be mails. You want to look also at church records. I'll just quickly state that for South Carolina, for Baptist records, Furman University is the repository for all South Carolina Baptist church records. And depending on the location and the church and what remains, you may have extensive records, even going back to slavery where they name the slaves. Sometimes slaves are baptized. That's recorded. Slaves are excommunicated for certain things that that they've done. So you can have that type of detail. So don't overlook that. And also you want to look at uh, wills of slave owners. So there's a variety of records that you can look at to get information. And I want to also mention that it's going to vary, again, state to state. So a state like South Carolina doesn't have as much detailed records if you are not from places like Charleston or Edgefield. Charleston has the best records. Edgefield has the second best archival collection in the state. In contrast, Virginia has a wealth of records and they have a register going back to, I believe, 1853 registers of births and deaths in the Commonwealth. So is there going to be a second part to this? I I found it almost like a mystery. I was so absorbed reading this You know, I read at night, so like I would just strain to the edge of my being able to stay awake to keep reading. (laughs) So after you did this very impressive uh, amount of research, and do you have a desire to do more and to do another book? Yes. Let me answer this in two parts. First, number one, I am not only a an author, but I am a publisher. My company is called Rocky Pond Press. And last August, I published a book titled Virtue of Cain, From Slave to Senator, the biography of Lawrence Cain. 
It's written by Kevin M. Cherry Sr., a white man who discovered about five to seven years ago that his second great-grandfather was not part Cherokee, but in fact was a black man, very fair-skinned, from Edgefield District, South Carolina. I happen to mention Lawrence Kane in the book that I co-authored. I think both Gail and I mentioned Lawrence Kane. Just briefly, Lawrence Kane was educated, even though he wasn't supposed to be taught, he was born during slavery. Someone educated him. He accompanied, he was a body servant to a Confederate soldier during the Civil War. He was injured at Appomattox, where Robert E. Lee eventually surrendered. When he returned to Edgefield, he opened up the first school for colored students in 1866. He was a census enumerator in 1870. He joined the government as a state representative, lower house, in 1868. So I, I just want to mention, he's an extraordinary individual. And if someone wants to get into deeper what happened in Edgefield, I mention it, but his book, because he's a direct descendant of this person who was in power and then lost his seat in 1876 when white regained power in South Carolina. So I would mention the book, Virtue of Cain, from Slave to Senator, Biography of Lawrence Cain. I will be working on another book, but talking about my Virginia roots. There's a big difference, just in researching, I've noticed, between South Carolina and Virginia versus sort of the upper South and the deep South. There's a big difference. And I like to highlight some of those differences. Those ancestors of mine were landowners, whereas my ancestors in, in South Carolina and Edgeville were not. Mm, mm. Yeah, I think I saw, saw the beginnings of some of that, you know, toward the end of the book, uh, you mentioning some of that, that was very interesting to me because it's closer here to D.C. and many where many of our listeners live, even though we have listeners all over the country and all over the world. But I'm going to have to leave it there. But I've so enjoyed this conversation. I'm sure our listeners want to hear more, uh, especially as you continue your research. I've been speaking with Natan Elaine Kemp, author of There's Something About Edgefield. Thank you for joining me today, Natan. Thank you. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. Thank you to Chantel James and to Lydia Curtis for their contributions to today's show. You can check out all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. And you can reach out to us and support us there as well. You can also let us know you like the show at On The Ground Show on Facebook, Twitter, or on Patreon.com at On The Ground Show. Our new podcast, On The Ground with Esther Ivarum, On The Ground, W. Esther Ivarum, is on all your podcast platforms, so look for us there. Our new podcast, our social media pages, and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says On The Ground. Thank you to all those checking out the podcast, and don't forget to give us a nice rating. The music we played this hour included Amnesia by Chick Corea and Centerlude by Chick Corea. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Ivarum. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.
say another thing. I didn't mean to take up all your sweet time. I'll give it right back to you. What did you say? Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show that's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material or you can see all the ways to support including end of the year giving and paypal on our website which you know is on the ground show dot org thank you <laughs>